HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. On today's episode, I welcome the co-owners of the Austin, Texas restaurant, Birdies. Tracy and our job moved from New York City to Austin with the hope of building an equitable neighborhood restaurant. With their small team, they have created a casual order at the counter spot that serves elevated plates like beef tartare with carded musica, seafood often sourced from the Gulf, and homemade pastas like cavatelli with speck. What they wanted to do was create a restaurant for the long term, both for themselves and their employees. So they built in things like healthcare, an equitable pay and tip model, and a winter and summer break when they shut down the restaurant for two weeks each season to provide a paid vacation for the entire team to recharge. At Birdie's, Tracy, who's a Texas native, handles chef duties, and our job, who was born in New Delhi and grew up in Portland, handles front of house in the wine list. Tracy spent time at Crew, Del Posto, and Blue Hill, and our job worked at Wolfgang Puck and Comey before they met in 2015 as part of the opening team for Danny Meyer's restaurant Untitled at the Whitney. They first articulated their dream to open a restaurant together after many, many after-work cocktails, but more on that in the actual episode. Among its accolades, Birdie has been named a best restaurant in Austin by Eater and was chosen by the New York Times in 2021 as one of the 50 most exciting restaurants in America. On this episode of The Line, recorded in late 2021, we talk about moving to a brand new city and starting a life there, how to build efficiency and maintain momentum while running a busy restaurant, creating a style and a vibe of a casual restaurant while coming from a higher-end background, keeping your staff happy while maintaining your sanity as owners, and of course, so much more. As always, if you think your story would be right for The Line, send me an email at theline at heritageradionetwork.org, or you can send me a direct message on Instagram to my main account, which is at the Sussmans, T-H-E-S-U-S-S-M-A-N-S. And now, on to the episode. We met in New York, opening Untitled at the Whitney, and I was a sous chef our job was a captain and became a manager. And essentially, we became best friends, fell in love, and decided to open Birdies. 
yeah, the, the, that's like the edited version. The, the true story is we got <laughs> super drunk one night um, in the East Village and Tracy walked up to me really boldly and goes, we're going to open a restaurant someday. And I said, we're going to get married someday. And turned out both of those things happened. So here we are in Austin, Texas, um, you know, five years after we first met. And he had never, for the record, even asked me out on a date. He just boldly <laughs> stated we were going to get married. He started it, so. Okay. <laughs> two huge proclamations uh in the same breath which is like let's do the most complicated uh personal life related activity that we could and then let's just join up professionally and also do the craziest thing in the entire world which is opening up a restaurant so uh obviously you both had experience you were at untitled at the whitney which is a danny meyer restaurant and uh if i'm not mistaken is like either a several stars correct and uh was considered i would say a fine dining restaurant is that a fair assessment of untitled or is it more casual untitled went through like several iterations i think the iteration we were in um you know when it was like the hottest like museum opening of you know the year 2015 when the whitney opened up um it was a really busy restaurant so it was a high volume restaurant and we tried to really like execute at a fine dining level which was sometimes quite frankly, a challenge. Uh, but yeah, Tracy and I, you know, after Untitled, I moved on to, to Gramercy Tavern. Tracy was a sewer at Gramercy before that. Um, she was at Blue Hill and Del Posto before those two spots. So, you know, both our pedigrees are pretty fine dining and Birdie's is most definitely, the, certainly the most casual thing we've ever done. Um, and it's kind of a breath of fresh air, honestly. Before we get to birdies, because obviously that, we're going to spend a chunk of the time on that, Tracy, I want to ask a little bit about those formative years working in some of those New York City kitchens. So our job just listed some really tremendous restaurants that uh, pretty much anyone who is involved in food ha has heard of. Was there one specific spot that you spent some time that uh, for you was either the most important or you learned the most or a really formative experience? I think they all played a part in who I've become as a professional. Um, I think that Gramercy Tavern and working with Mike Anthony for me as a chef and my style and my attitude, he was just so positive and inclusive when we made decisions as a team. So I felt like learning that kind of thought process, not just like, this is how you make a dish, but this is how you make a decision as a business you know, whether it's regarding repairs and maintenance or whatever it is, he always included us. So I think the way he treated our team, the way we spoke to our team, it was less of like, this is how we're doing it. It was more of like, let's have a conversation. What's everyone's opinion on this? And I think that was really formative and the kind of chef I want to be. He's a real rarity, especially these days, since he's been at that restaurant for, I think, more than two decades at this point, which doesn't happen that often. Um, was there something about that kitchen uh, and people sticking around for a long time at Gramercy Tavern that um, that either like instilled something in you as a cook at a young age or something that you carried through? Because basically these days, people really do jump around a lot. And I've never been at any of the restaurants that you worked at, but I've heard a lot that people stay at Gramercy for quite a long time. Um, can you speak a little to that? Just like the atmosphere, just go into it a little deeper in the kitchen, the back of house vibe and, and what 
what the expectations are in a place like that? Yeah, um, you're exactly right. No one really ever wanted to leave Gramercy. It's like once you got in, you really tried to never leave because Mike and, you know, Danny and that umbrella, I think they really just created places you wanted to be. It was from the kitchen perspective, we were always pursuing excellence and we were serious about our craft. But, you know, if someone was having a bad day, you offered them a hot tea. If someone had a huge list and you had time, you try to help them out. It was very team oriented and it was very positive. And at first, you know, my first few weeks, I was like, why is everyone here so friendly? This is kind of weird. And one of my one of my colleagues was like, just give it a few months, you'll get used to it. Because I had just thought fine dining was you have to be serious, you have to be head down and not say hi to anyone, or maybe just hello and like keep going and say hi to your couple friends. But Gramercy was just a place that you said hello to everybody. You, you know, shook hands, you were friendly, um, you communicated with respect. And I think it was the kind of place that everyone wanted to grow and to be a part of. And when I started there, I think it was like 2012. Um, when I was there, the sous chef team had been there all for three to eight years. I mean, they were really committed, amazing culture, awesome people. And I think a lot of that really came from Mike. Yeah, there's, you said that, you know, some people were there for three, eight years. I'm sure some of the even executive leadership team was there for longer. Obviously, you both moved on and, and opened up your own place. And that is the end goal for most people um, to gain a lot of experience and then uh, make connections, move on to potentially opening up your own spot, which obviously you've done. I'm wondering, besides that first, that initial conversation where you both sort of, uh, it seems like you tried to one-up each other into planning your <laughs> lives together, um, where were the original seeds or ideas, Tracy first, and then our job for opening up your own place? Like, was there a day or a year when you were either on the floor or front of house, in the kitchen, back house, where you thought, I think I'm ready? And when you felt that way, if you did... What type of place, Tracy, were you thinking would be your restaurant one day? Sure. So for me, I have to go way back to when I was a kid. I always wanted to have my own restaurant. I didn't know that involved cooking. I thought I wanted to be more of a dining room professional and owner. And then I went to college for hotel restaurant management and realized towards the end, I was like, you know, I kind of want to try something else. But with food, and I helped my friend plate a seven course dinner. And I was like, whoa, this cooking thing looks really exciting and really makes me feel alive. And so that's kind of how I started pursuing cooking. And then my first job was actually in Chicago with a little neighborhood restaurant called Lula Cafe. The chef owners were husband and wife, Jason and Leah, who are the most incredible people. And whenever I worked there, I was like, I kind of want to open a place kind of like this someday. And then I ended up going to cooking school in upstate New York and working in fine dining, but opening a place kind of like Lula Cafe, that neighborhood, um, team-oriented, friendly place people could just drop in once or twice a week, I that never left me. And so I think for me, that planted a seed of, even though I want to work in fine dining and you know pursue my craft of cooking and be the best I can be, I still don't want to get away from that familiarity from, you know, us knowing our guests' names and their stories and developing those relationships. 
Arjab, what about you? When were those initial dreams uh, planted in your mind of uh, opening up your own place or partnering with someone, whoever that may be, uh, on your own spot? Yeah, so I think my story kind of mirrors Tracy's in some way in the sense that I was um, I was always like from a young, ever since I was a young kid, I knew I was going to open a restaurant someday. I grew up in a hospitality family. So, you know, my parents run a little supper club in Portland to this day called Tali Supper Club. It's an Indian supper club. Um, but, you know, I was around, like the dining table was always the most important part of our life growing up. Uh, it was where we would share our stories or days. Um, and I think, you know, from a very like early part of my life, restaurants started becoming that. Like when my parents had their anniversary, you know, my brother Anuj and I would like choose where we went to eat dinner because it was like a family event. It was an excuse to go out together. Um, and so restaurants always played this like really magical place in my my childhood. Um, and in high school, um, I was like, okay, I want to give this a shot. So I did the opposite thing where I wanted to see what it would be like to be a cook instead of the dining room. So Tracy started off in the dining room, ended up in the kitchen. I started off in the kitchen, um, had a really good time, but I knew I wasn't cut out for that life and the lifestyle that comes with it. Um, so I was like, okay, um, let me think about college. So I went and studied politics uh, at Kenyon College in Ohio. Uh, when I graduated and moved to Washington, D.C., um, and, you know, started interviewing at law firms and just looked at people's faces when I walked in. I was like, this is not what I thought it would be. Um, so, you know, my parents actually, interestingly enough, were like, hey, you always have loved restaurants. Like, why not give this a shot in a real meaningful way? So I uh, knocked on a bunch of doors. I had no restaurant experience, uh, but the general manager at the source uh, by Wolfgang Puck in D.C., which was the museum restaurant behind the museum, uh, took a, a, a shot at me. Um, and I started off as a back waiter, uh, moved my way up to a captain in uh, six months, and then started thinking about, okay, like, I understand the mechanics of this job, what's next. Um, and then I spent five years at a restaurant called Comey, which was maybe the most important, you know, five years of my life as far as shaping what it could mean to work at a restaurant, you know, it was really about culture and a really small restaurant that kind of invested heavily in their team all the time. Uh, and I think there are remnants of that restaurant uh, or this like connective tissue, at least I hope between birdies and Comey and small ways. Tracy knows I can't stop talking about that restaurant. It's a huge part of, um, you know, who I think like I, I would like to embody um, as a restaurant. Uh, but yeah, we, um, you know, five years into Comey, I realized there wasn't a whole lot of space for me to grow because people were there 10, 12 years because it was such an amazing place. Um, so I said, okay, I need to see how big restaurant groups do this. So moved up to New York to help in um, Untitled with Tracy. Um, and that's where we met. Was there anything that when when you got together and you started to make these decisions, was there any inkling, any thought about staying in New York and doing a project there? Um if you can speak a little bit about that in terms of what may have turned you off or turned you on about New York, and obviously you opened in Austin, so you made the decision not to, um, but did you get close in any way? Like, was there planning at any point in, in New York to do something? Uh, we casually discussed it. I think in terms of the reality of opening a restaurant in New York, and we have a lot of friends who've done it, and either known or known of a lot of incredible restaurants with fantastic teams serving delicious food. 
that just didn't make it because of whatever random landlord or whatever just thing that pops up, we realized that we wanted to come to Texas because it was a little bit a little bit easier to kind of get open and less hula hoops to jump through. Real estate is a little bit easier, even though Austin is getting pretty intense. It's still not like New York. Um, we just thought it was a better business decision. And then additionally, we were like, man, we can maybe get a dog. And if we ever have kids, they could have a backyard. And so even though part of me never wanted to leave New York because it's New York, I think just kind of figuring out our next chapter and the life we kind of wanted to create, we knew we needed to step away. Yeah, I think New York is such a dynamic city for restaurants, but I think, you know, I think you've seen a lot of restaurant people leave New York to do things in other cities over the last few years. I think that is a like a culmination of a lot of factors. And I think, you know, for us, I think one of the big things was like, we have to build a business that works for us. Like, we can't build a business where we just work for the business. Like this has to be kind of a reciprocal relationship. Otherwise it doesn't work. I, I, you know, I think Tracy and I both looked at each other and we were like, we don't want to be employees at our own restaurant. We want to, if we and like to have the best shot of being a restaurant tour someday, it required us looking at different markets where we thought there was a ton of opportunity. Uh, but there was enough breathing room with margin where we could actually like eventually come off of payroll, get distributions and actually run the business rather than just running a restaurant. Yeah. There's so many aspects of owning a business that you don't see, even when you get up to the level of GM or executive chef, or even just high levels within any restaurant. When, even when you're in the room and you're in the know, and even if the PL is open and you can look at it, there are things that you just do not have to deal with until you're the owner. So uh, tell me about what were some of those first things that maybe surprised you and caught you off guard when you were trying to get open? Uh, was there anything that you were maybe ill prepared for or that was a lot more difficult than you expected? Um, I think for us, I think that it was like first developing a new vocabulary, right? It's like you go from like, firing pastas and like dealing with guests uh, understanding how to build relationships with potential investors learning the language around real estate what does ti money mean like all those little small things understanding a lease how to negotiate that um i think there's a lot of small things that i think didn't catch us off guard but there was certainly a learning curve we always joke that we probably spent 10 percent of our opening budget on just like a learning um but you know, for us, I think it was really an opportunity to ask ourselves some tough questions after having been in restaurants as long as we had. And the question was, if we were going to open a restaurant today and didn't know anything about restaurants, what would it look like? You know, I think one of the things that Tracy and I are like are always aware of is that like restaurants kind of just open in the same form because like no one ever teaches you how to open a restaurant. You just say, oh, like we need to have a SOM on the team. We need to have back waiters, front waiters, captains, whatever it is. And I think you know, as we kind of looked at the landscape, you know, during COVID, we signed our lease the week before or two weeks before COVID shut the entire restaurant industry down. We looked at the landscape and said, okay, where do we need to be? We need to skate to the puck rather than reacting to it um, eventually. And, you know, for us, it was like, okay, minimum wage is going to go up. Uh, it's a matter of when, not if, um, the tip minimum wage is going to go up. How do we like invest in our employees? How do we make sure there's not like this massive chasm between 
you know, pay scales between the front and back. Um, you know, so a, Birdie's is a counter service, fine dining restaurant, <laughs> um, you know, with an extensive wine list. So like our wine list and our food are like match fine dining, like quality, uh, but the service and the approach to it is entirely different from anything we ever experienced. So you made a conscious decision to uh, to switch up the service style. And so when you say order at the counter, does that mean that cooks run food? Or is there sort of shared responsibilities between front of house and back of house? And if yes, is that done so that things pool in a specific type of way? Like, I don't know what the laws are in Texas, but you, if you can speak a little to how you organize your staff so that if, if it is hopefully more equitable, if that's what you're shooting for, how does that actually come to be to fruition in reality? Sure. So the laws um, are different in Texas. Um, and in New York, as you know, there's like percentages of time you need to interact with guests to be in the tip pool which I always found frustrating. You know, there was nothing like a busy Friday night working meat roast and you'd get crushed and your captain friends would make five to six times what you made. And you can barely keep the lights on and pay your bills. And I always thought someday when I have a restaurant, I'm changing this. This isn't right. And I think this was honestly part of the equation of leaving New York um, is that we wanted to change the restaurant model and the laws just didn't really allow us to in New York city. So the way we structure it is everyone is in the tip pool, cooks, dishwashers, dining room team, um, everyone except for our job and I, and everyone makes an hourly wage and then they're all tipped out equally. So the Texas laws basically say that if you pay people minimum wage, you can distribute the tip pool however you see fit. Um, so we pay, you know, starting at $8 an hour plus tips for everybody. Um, and that tips, uh, the tips are distributed equitably between everybody. So there's no point system. There's no tiered point system. Like we don't believe that anyone's labor should be, um, you know, we, we believe in meritocracy. So like, you know, if we think someone deserves a promotion or deserves a higher wage because of the, their performance, the business should pay it out. It shouldn't be a redistribution of the tip pool based on what people's work is. So, you know, for us, it's like that money comes in, the dishwasher, the cook, um, the person working the register, the patio server, the food runner, they all get the same amount of points. And then, you know, as people grow in the business, the goal is to pay them a higher base wage as they grow. So, you know, right now, like we're, you know, the, the team is about 13, 14 people. So it works really well with a, a small team. The next challenge for us is like, how do you scale this? Is that the norm in Austin? Are you doing something a little bit different than what other folks are doing? We are. Whenever we kind of came to this realization that this was the business model we wanted to go with, we, you know, I'd visit LA and checked out restaurants like Squirrel and Destroyer that were more daytime concepts, but used a similar model where it was thoughtful, elevated food, but still that casual counter service. And we love that. And we actually played around with doing a daytime model until we came to the realization that we're not morning people and <laughs> we like cooking dinner um, and sleeping a little bit later. So we were like, well, what if we do like a hybrid and our buddies who own Nixta just down East 12th street where we're located. Um, they have fantastic 
a restaurant and they do kind of a similar thing, yeah. but we were like, well, what if we do it kind of like those, you know, that inspiration, but then do the food we want, do the extensive wine list we want, but still kind of keep that counter service model. So we do that and then we take drink orders in line. So if we are lucky enough to have a line, everyone can kind of grab their, their wine or in line and just chill out and hang out. Um, and the systems evolved, right? So yeah. it's like at, at first it was like, okay, like you have to order the counter, and like that continues to be the, the case. And that's like one of the things we do to kind of pace the kitchen through the course of the night. Uh, that's kind of our throttle, right? So if the kitchen's getting humped, we just stop the line for a minute, let them catch up. Um, it's really nice to be in control of those aspects. Um, and I think what you know, I, I think what is sometimes challenging doing something like this is we're asking more of our guests. Right, like hospitality for so long has been about how do you make the guest experience as comfortable as possible? And for us, it's kind of, you know, that's a very important thing, but it's number two, right? Number one for us is how do we make our employee experience as comfortable as possible? Because the next 20 years in this business are going to be about how do you grow a culture? How do you hire the best people? How do you build people's like, you know, interest into a career? Because people are leaving this industry in droves. And the challenge for us, if we want to be competitive over the next two decades, is to make sure that we're building and growing people, but doing it so in a really sustainable way. And I think, you know, COVID has allowed us now to flex technology in a different way, flex our understanding of you know, hospitality in a different way and reorient it. So I'll give you an example. We charge a, a 3% health and wellness fee on every guest. That's not common in Austin, uh, but we that allows us to provide health insurance and paid vacation for our team. Uh, we shut down the restaurant for two weeks in the summer, two weeks in the winter uh, to give everyone a, a paid vacation because we think that's like really important. And because Tracy and I don't want to be there. So if we don't want to be there, we can't expect like our team to be there. Yeah, we right? all need time to recharge. We all need time to recharge. And this allows us to just block out time where people can forecast ahead and say, hey, I know I'm having this time off. And that's actually led to less time off requests because people are planning their vacations, you know, when those weeks off are happening. So yeah. they know to forecast a little bit ahead. And then we also have little QR codes on every table. Uh, that was something that the pandemic brought to the four where people can order more beverage. So it just allowed us to keep a, a much leaner team, um, you know, with the same kind of sales output that we would expect otherwise. So yeah, they, they do that in Montreal as well. They shut down for uh, a chunk of the, the year around Christmas, I want to say. I'm not sure if every restaurant does it, but I know because I was in Montreal and I tried to go out to dinner and everyone's got signs on their doors that says like our staff is on vacation. You know, they basically all go at the same time, recharge, you know, be with your friends and your family and do what you want to do. I thought that was genius. I mean, you can never pull that off in New York. That's not probably something that yeah. is ever going to be a possibility in New York City. Maybe if you have a an extremely, extremely busy, very, very small restaurant. But um, the QR code innovation that was brought on by the pandemic, I actually, I agree with you. I think that's super cool. I think that as more people embrace that, that will give you uh, interesting, innovative ways to like interact with your customer. And I, it's cool that you say that they can reorder through the QR code, which probably means that you don't need as many people working the floor, right? Correct. Um, it uh, alleviates a little bit of burden on having like the touch points of the waiter, which, um, well, you both know coming from like a 
overly staffed Danny Meyer fine dining background. There's like six people for each table and you have to touch tables, you know, multiple times during their, uh, during their visit. Uh, now because of COVID, even with dine in, I think people are kind of moving away from that. It's almost like an antiquated model of, uh, you know, take your order, check in, check in again, bring your food, you know, that kind of type of thing. So I'm wondering what other innovations have you been able to see or uh, that you've come up with that you haven't been able to put into place yet because of COVID? If there are any things that um, the pandemic taught you about service or takeout or really anything about being in, in the restaurant business? That's a good question. I think for, you know, for us, COVID offered up a lot of lessons, right? And I think for us, I was like, you know, we didn't put a whole lot into our build out. People laughed us out of rooms when we told them how much we wanted to do it uh, for. And I think for us, like, it was like a a kind of a a three-part thing, right? It was like, don't invest too much into your build out. You can always add stuff after you open, right? So like, we have to think about the bottom line at all costs and like your cash on hand, Right. Because I think like that's something that certainly the pandemic changed was like you need more of a cushion than you ever did. Um, and then, you know, as I as Trace and I kind of like forecast for the next five years, thinking really like innovatively, like with technology solutions uh, to solve some of the like human problems within a restaurant. And also thinking about like, how do you take your cash and make it also work for you. Like that's something that's really interesting that I'm like trying to wrap my head around is like, you know, fortune 500 companies are really good at this. They take a certain percentage of their like cash on hand and invest it in like non-correlated businesses or industries. So that like when, you know, a recession hits or whatever hits, their vertical may go down, but another vertical is going up. And create some sort of balance. So I've just been, that's like a, a question that's occupied my brain more. I don't have a, a, an answer yet, but I've been thinking about like, how do we diversify what we do rather than like outside of the four walls of our business? You know, maybe it's merchandise, maybe it's, you know, something along those lines, but I, I haven't wrapped my head around, but it's a question I find myself asking a lot is how do we, you know, push out some of these things to the web? How do we take our cash position and think about it like a little bit differently than maybe we would have historically thought about it uh, and make it work for us as much as we're working for it, you know? So um, I think the future of restaurants is going to have to be like, we're going to have to borrow from other industries, right? And I think Trace and I was laughed. We we're like, you know, how do we want, like we looked at our first business plan and it was just like a restaurant. It was just like the exact same restaurants that we'd always worked at mm-hmm. and COVID hit and that just completely changed everything, you know? And then looking at the profit margin for that traditional restaurant model, we were like, this just, this isn't making sense, you know? And to your point about touch points, people don't need the same kind of extensive interaction with three dining room team members, you know, placing your order, ordering your next drink or entree with either a person on a handheld or that QR code that kind of feels better from their perspective as well. And then also you get your wine right away, which my thing is when you go to a restaurant, sometimes it takes 20 minutes to get a drink and it's like, can I just get my my drink already? Yeah. So I think that's actually a hospitable touch point. So I think in thinking about the creation of birdies, we wanted to take the things from fine dining we loved and then leave the things we didn't love. And then also, even though COVID has been terrible, 
we've learned so many lessons and signing the lease right before it started, we had a lot of time to think about what we wanted birdies to be. We had pay the, pay the bills kind of jobs and with great restaurants in town, but we had, you know, we were furloughed off and on. And so we had a lot of time to really think about what we wanted birdies to be. So I think we got kind of fortunate with the timing of birdies. Were you prepared to do takeout? Was it an aspect of your business model and planning before you opened? And then did you have to do what lots of other places did, which was like, did you shut down? Did you swap your entire menu out for things that travel well and stay open? Like, how did you react? And um, did it work out? Or, Or were you like, as a chef and as an owner, were you like, this is not what I wanted to do at all with my food? Or did you think that it actually kind of adapted well? Like, how how, how did that COVID uh, takeout pivot, for lack of a better word, uh, work out for you at Birdie's? So the timing thing is kind of where we got to skip past that. We were definitely prepared to, we're kind of make it happen. People like just about every other restaurant person is, is like, you kind of just go and you figure it out. So we signed the lease in February right before COVID. And then we slated to open in October of, what was that? 2021? Wow, time flies. And then with the pandemic, that pushed back construction significantly. So we didn't open until... We pushed back construction significantly in part because okay. like, it was impossible to raise the the full round asking people for money. Right. That as well. <laughs> you know, it was like, really, they like, should give us money. We're opening a restaurant. Like, <laughs> well, what? Are you kidding me right now? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, we never, so yeah. So we pushed, so we pushed, um, we didn't open until July of 2021. So whenever we opened, we were kind of in a little bit better time of the pandemic where vaccines were out. Um, and even though it's, you know, every day is a new day and you never know what's going to happen with these variants, we didn't really have to make that takeout decision. We're definitely the kind of people that every day is a new day. And if we need to do something, we will to serve our guests and to keep our employees employed. Yeah, we're lucky, though. I mean, two thirds of our dining rooms outside. So we have like, you know, 22 seats inside. We have like something like 60 seats outside. So, um, you know, it's a like again, COVID, like we happened to just have this big backyard that really became a question of how, like, how do we activate this backyard now? You know, so we invested more into the backyard than we were thinking about investing in before the pandemic. Um, and that's really our dining room. So at the beginning, you know, when we opened in July, you know, things were spaced out inside, but that only meant like 12 people could sit inside. Um, but most people were totally comfortable sitting outside, you know, and it was, a, it's a pretty big backyard. So, um, that allowed us to not have to immediately do takeout, et cetera. But we have those elements kind of built into the restaurant if we ever need to. So there's like mm-hmm. a, you know, a to-go window that's built in and, you know, it just allows us to kind of pivot if something like this ever happens again, or this new variant goes nuts again. Were you staffed up appropriately? And like, did the, was the kitchen and the menu designed to accommodate those 60 seats in the backyard? So... I think we have a pretty amazing team and we opened with myself and three cooks and cooking the way we cook was kind of a start fresh every day and push. And then there were many nights where we were, you know, making orchetti to order. 
because we were so busy and, you know, we had our academy guy making it happen. Um, and we still have, no, it's me and four people. Um, so we, it's, it's not easy, but everyone is very talented and works hard. Um, we're fortunate that we've been busy and the tip pool is very healthy. So they're making really good money and have insurance if they want it. So I think they're all taken care of. Um, and they're all very included in decision-making, even though it's right now, I'm the only technical back of the house manager. You know, we make a lot of decisions together, you know, with a menu every day, we kind of start over and it's like, well, what do you have? You know, we have this extra spigarello in, what should we do with it? And we try to keep things spontaneous from a cooking perspective and also keep them engaged and involved. We've never like had to like adjust the menu based on like staffing. We were like, when we opened up, I think we were staffed appropriately for what, like where we were. And then we've just continued to kind of hire up as we've gotten busy. Obviously the New York times thing hit and, um, that happened the same week as formula one. So I think it was like a real kind of moment to grow into our, you know, our big shoes. Um, and like learn some systems, learn some of the deficiencies in our systems. Um, but, you know, I think what I'm really proud of is like the way we all responded as a team to these new challenges and everyone kind of took them on head first, um, had creative solutions to problems. Um, and I think that's something that's like the intangible of like working at a restaurant. Like it's like the thing that, you know, makes a culture work in a lot of ways it's like not people whining about being really busy it's like hey we're really busy this is an opportunity like let's make the most of it you know and it was great to see our team the dining room team respond with like let's do extra things of hospitality our job can i like you know these people are visiting from out of town they're here for two days like what can we do to make their experience even more fun you know and that kind of became the the vibe of the place um and yeah we're you know really grateful that we've been able to hire a great team pre-opening and continue to grow it. And that allows us now to be, because we're such a small team, be more selective about who we bring on. You know, um, we'd rather be lean for a few days and push really hard than hire on something that doesn't make sense um, or won't be successful within our space and our culture. And when it does get crazy, I'm kind of like, we have like an ongoing joke, but I'll turn around from the past, which is right by the order counter and just say, stop the line, stop the line, because there's just too many tickets and it's myself and two cooks and, you know, we cook everything fresh. So it takes time. Um, so if you feel like it's getting, it's getting out of control, we're still so small that we can just pause line for a minute. You know, everyone can see the kitchen, it's open kitchen. So our guests typically understand. It's two, two cooks in an expo cooking for upwards of 200 people at night, you know? So it's, I've never heard of someone admitting that out loud, by the way, that they, uh, that they stop tickets and that they stop the kitchen. It's pretty amazing. Like you really are thinking about the quality of the food and the mental state of your staff, as opposed to just counting checks and counting tickets, which is like the more people, obviously the more money you're going to make that night. But at what point does that lead to suffering on both your, uh, customers and on your staff? And then you can only do that for a couple of days and then your staff doesn't want to work there anymore and people don't want to come there anymore. Um, have you ever had any uh, pushback on folks saying that it like takes too long to get seated? Are people pretty chill in Austin? Like do people, 
I mean, we're talking about it and I'm in the industry. So everything you're saying, I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. You're checking off all the boxes for me. You know, (laughs) I'm, I'm obviously vibing on everything that you're saying. And I'm sure that most people listening would be like, that sounds like a dream scenario. What do customers think when you try to educate them about this new process, which is like, Hey, you've come to a restaurant to eat, but guess what? You have to wait in line. And also if the line's too long, you have to wait longer. Like how do they react to that? I mean, I would say people are pretty chill for the most part. I would say like, you know, the way I like I think Birdie's guests kind of fall into three categories. Like 30%, 35% are like rabid about us. Like, you know, there's like a middle 50 50 to 60% 60% that like love it, you know, and then there's like 10% who just don't get it. And when we opened it, like we knew that was going to happen. But, you know, it was like part of the challenge is like you do something long enough, then people understand after a while. But like anytime you're doing something new, there's going to be growing pains. People don't understand the system, don't understand, you know, what they are they waiting in line just to put their name in? Or is that like the line to order? You know, like there's like these challenges that came up. But one thing we saw immediately is once we started selling wine in line, that everyone simmered down. Um, and, you know, that was great for the business and great for the guests at the same time. So, you know, that's something we've continued to do. We've invested in like a drink rail outside and um, all that, but yeah, it's a challenge. You know, we didn't, when we opened this restaurant, we didn't think we would have like a two hour line on some nights. That's just the way it turned out. You know, it was, we said, Oh, like, we'll be lucky if we have a 15 minute wait, <laughs> you know, uh, knock on wood. And, you know, we're still early on. So I, I think, you know, we're riding some of the things that like we've been lucky enough to get some attention early on, but none, nothing is going to last forever. And all the decisions we make have to be sustainable for the long term. Right. So like, yes, are we asking more of our guests right now? Yes. But like, it's not going to be, you know, two hour wait forever, <laughs> you know, it's right now. So that's why we kind of like focus on the things that we can control, which are like our guests and our, like our health, <laughs> you know? Yeah. In terms of uh, the staff's health and your health, I want to talk about a couple aspects of just staffing in general. Uh, There's been a huge amount of difficulty in a lot of cities. I don't know what's going on in Austin. You can speak to it for me uh, with finding people that are interested in still working in the hospitality industry. We've seen a lot of people leaving the industry for for other careers. the flip side of that is there's been kind of a reckoning on a lot of fronts in the hospitality industry, but specifically in terms of like how we treat our employees. And you've spoken quite a bit about what you're trying to accomplish and make your uh, restaurant and staff have an equitable experience. But what are your thoughts on the restaurant actually existing anymore as a family and existing as a place where people come and is it just a job? Is birdies a lifestyle? Is it your dream? Is it your staff's dream? Like if you can just speak to what your kind of ethos and what your mantras are in this, uh, in this realm, um, because it's, it's become more complicated to navigate this as an owner than it was a couple years ago. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So we don't like to think of birdies as a family. We like to think of it as a sports team, like a high achieving sports team. Our job and I are into basketball and we have some analogies sometimes. And, you know, in a family, you're never going to let anyone go. You're going to, 
you know, have sometimes unrealistic unrealistic expectations for your employees with some family pressure and guilt. And, you know, we, this is a career for everyone and we want to professionalize our industry. Um, we want to make sure that everyone's on the same page with the way we work. Um, and we definitely don't say family, we care about our employees. We try to keep an open relationship. Um, we, you know, totally welcome people sitting down talking with us if anything's going on in their world, but we're definitely not, a family. Yeah, I think, you know, for us, it's like we talk about it as a team in part because like great championship level teams always develop a culture that inevitably feels maybe like a family, but they're still a team, right? So it's based, it's like, a, it's a meritocracy and it's based on like achievement. Like for us, it's really important that like, I think the family myth has actually hurt restaurants a lot, right? Because like, I think employees can sometimes take advantage of it. I think employers take advantage of it um, in, a, in a real way. And we've been on the like <laughs> other end of it. I think if we think about restaurants as a career, then we have to start thinking about them as high functioning teams, which means that like, you know, if you're not performing at a level, I can trade you. I can, I can cut you. I can do all those things a professional sports team would do. But, you know, if we're doing our, our jobs as like the management side, bringing in the right pieces, we have to hold ourselves accountable to that fact, too. So if we're bringing in pieces that don't make sense, then that's going to hurt the culture, you know? So we hold ourselves to a really high standard about who we bring in. And sometimes that means like I'm busting more tables than I ever have. I just become a glorified food, food runner for the day and I can't do some of the things I'd like to do on, on you know, as the, the guy on the floor, like selling wine, talking about. Same thing with Our me culture. being a wine cook. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And Tracy, all day and you had to do it last week. You know, Tracy was yeah. expoing and cooking, you know, on one of our busiest nights. But, but like, she was not willing to compromise and bring the wrong person in, even if it was going to mean a week worth of like comfort. She'd rather wait two weeks and get the right person, and know that the person's going to stick around for at least a year and a half, two years. Yeah, that's cool to use a sports team analogy. I've uh, often thought of it as like a writer's room on a tv show that's how i kind of picture it yeah. like you know sometimes someone writes an episode the next week another person writes an episode someone's like clearly in charge but you know everyone gets to contribute creatively but you're also allowed to tell people that that's not a, maybe the best idea in the entire world but um i yeah i agree with you that uh moving away from the family mantra of like you owe it to me to work off the clock I'm hoping that everyone will uh, do away with that. Um, it's still, I'm still hearing from people that that's not the case, unfortunately, that not much has changed uh, during COVID at some of like the, the bigger fine dining places of people that I, that I speak to, but um, maybe they'll never change. And maybe they're like a dinosaur that will go extinct one day. But I think uh, at, at the more casual places you're seeing it, you're, you're seeing it, th there being a shift. We're gonna take a quick break. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. 
Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Welcome back to The Line on Heritage Radio Network. Let's pick up the second half of the episode with our Jav and Tracy from Birdies in Austin, Texas. We moved to Austin. We started fundraising here like three months after we moved here. We had we knew no one down here, you know? So for us, it was as much kind of a, a networking opportunity as anything else. Um, you know, we, um, we set our fundraising targets um, it was a pretty low threshold. We only raised $300,000 for this whole project. Um, and, you know, there was some concern from a lot of people about whether what you could do, what we wanted to do for that amount. Um, but it was also really hard, you know, first time raising money. People don't know what Gramercy Tavern is outside from like people, you know, who travel up there. Um, you don't understand like necessarily understand like the background and why it translates to Austin or how it translates. We were doing this completely new model, which was also confusing to people. Um, so it was a challenge, you know? Uh, but what we did was like reach out to friends and family and, um, you know, they invested in us, um, uh, knowing that they were investing in people, not necessarily a business. Um, and we were able to achieve our fundraising round despite COVID. Um, and one of the things that I think, you know, listeners may find of interest is, you know, what, as money started driving up, we started thinking about doing trades. So we did equity trades for work. Um, so like our build out, for example, um, we found uh, someone we really wanted to work with in town, um, but we traded equity for their work. Um, so it was a win for both sides in some ways, right? Like we got more work out of them because they were essentially doing things at cost and it, and it allowed them to innovate and come up with like really cool custom things for the restaurant. So it's like, looks like a custom built restaurant, but you know, we were able to do it on our budget because we decided we were just going to trade equity with them for their work instead. Um, so, you know, we, tr- we had to be really creative. People weren't going to cut us checks, like how we were going to get to the finish line. And, you know, we did that and that really helped close the gap. Um, and then, you know, the rest of, we only have like six investors, uh, and they're all like friends and family, essentially. I love that. I think it's so smart because people that do the work, they're already going to be invested because that's their business card. You know, birdies is there. They can bring people by and say, I did that banquet. I did the graphic design, whatever it might be. So you literally and figuratively got them to buy in. Yeah, no, that was, that was the pitch, right? The pitch was like, bring people here. <laughs> if you if you have clients that you want to show the space to, do it. Yeah. It's it's also great. It speaks to your kind of like everyone is is welcome and you you want it to be a fair experience because in reality, who has the extra money to invest? It's probably not gonna be, you know, someone who does construction. 
like it's probably not going to be that person, right? They don't have an extra 50 or 75 grand sitting around most likely. So the people that traditionally invest in restaurants are people that, um, they don't, they don't really, they don't need to, you it's know, a vanity investment. like, let's just call it what it is for like most people. It's a vanity investment. It's like, right. Oh, I invested in that cool restaurant. Right. But for us, like the thing that was really important is like, how do we raise enough money to get the project done? But how do we make sure we don't raise too much money where we're like, you know, basically just spending the operating life of the business paying back investors, right? Like it was like, we want to pay back our investors as fast as humanly possible. And that meant like changing our expectations around a raise, you know, like our plates, for example, we bought them in crate and barrel. Like they're not really nice plates, but once we had cash coming in, then you can start investing in those things, you know, but we just didn't want to put all our money into something that like, you know, we know a lot of really smart people who are incredibly talented who've opened restaurants that haven't worked out. There is like a huge element of luck. You can be really good. You can be as thoughtful as you want with the business plan, whatever it is, but like, let's be real. There's an element of luck that is required to be successful in this business. And, you know, so far we've been lucky and we don't, we don't want that luck to run out. So, and, and honestly, I think just, I know we've kind of blocked out this point. Like you, whenever you go through like something tough, like a tough chapter, sometimes you just block it out. Like, let's just keep moving forward. But I think for anyone who's thinking about raising money and opening their own spot, I think, it is extraordinarily hard, but of course, just like everything with the restaurant, if you want to do it, you're going to do it. But just know, like we had to lean into like every possible channel, every person we met that ever joked about maybe investing in us someday, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to ask people for money and it's not something we were ever used to. And, you know, like people I cooked for in New York, you know, who were just like supportive, um, awesome people invested and we just kind of had to like really dive deep in our network and just be like, Hey, it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, which wasn't easy. Yeah. And we, you know, we built a deck, we built like financials, like all that stuff. Um, our first go at the deck was like very detailed and we didn't get the same kind of responses we did after I just kind of took it on and made it like much easier to understand made the financials a lot easier to understand because like most people don't understand restaurant, the restaurant business. Right. So for us, it was like, how do we simplify this P and L to make people understand what we're talking about? Yeah. Um, so we just basically created like one page P and L's. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people, they look at what the, what the revenue is and they're like, Oh wow, you had a good year. And then you have to explain to them that there's not really anything left at the end once you pay for your vendors and your food and your staff and everything like that. So uh, at first glance, it does look like it's an operation that often can generate a really nice lump number there. But uh, operating costs are are high and, and only get higher, are only getting higher. So that's my transition to uh, how have your uh, supply chains and your cost of goods been fluctuating since COVID or for the last six months, have you had to talk to your customers or change menu items out because you're finding things that are just skyrocketing? Like, are there any things that were like real big hits on the menu or maybe a wine that was really popular and you just like can't get your hands on something anymore? Um, I guess sometimes that can be fun to like have that constraint to ch change things up, but has it been frustrating at all to try to find things? 
Um, for me, I like constraints. I, I'm not the kind of chef that's like, I have, you know, these eight dishes I've been working on for the past year. And then I've got to have this exact thing. Like every day I show up and change the menu in some capacity, you know, we're fired on it. And sometimes I don't know what the pickup is. So I'm like, uh, let's figure this out guys. And that's just my style. So if I had every single thing to pick from and like money wasn't an option, I didn't have those hurdles. I would probably be like, I don't know what to cook. So I like being like, you know, we're a restaurant that's probably never going to serve filet or a strip or maybe even a ribeye. I'd rather serve off cuts. Um, so my mentality is a little bit different than a certain high end chef who feels like they need to serve a certain protein or a certain dish. So I haven't really felt that as much. I mean, you know, we work with our local farmers here so it's a little bit different for me, I think, than certain other chefs. Um, and I just kind of go with the flow and see what we have and then make a dish based off that. I mean, supply chain stuff has really affected us more on sort of like paper goods. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's like when we're looking for linen likes and like there, there's nothing coming in for a month. Uh, and then you have to buy them on Amazon and it's like five times the price. Um, you know, I think for us, like with wine, I've certainly felt it with wine. The amount of wine that's coming to Texas is like smaller than it's ever been. Uh, and then, you know, there's like, they get allocated and that creates its own kind of, um, challenges, uh, for young business. And you end up like, you know, begging and pleading for, you know, a bottle of Fieri Almond Cornasse. And it's like, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it is also an opportunity. Um, it is a chance to kind of push ourselves and say, okay, like, let's be creative. Like, where, what, what channels have we not looked at? You know, where have we, like, what stone have we not turned over to see if we can find something valuable um, and where we can innovate? So, you know, it, it, has it been a challenge? Sure, but like certainly not as much as it has been for other people. The press has been really phenomenal. Uh, we've alluded to it a little bit, but um, how has that how has that made you feel, both personally and professionally? Um, press can be wonderful because it brings bodies in through the door. It also raises expectations. Um, for you both, has it been... Uh, positive, negative, double-edged sword. Uh, what has it helped with and has it hurt in any way at all? I think we went from a busy, small restaurant to an extremely busy, small restaurant. And I think at first hearing that we were included was such an honor, kind of overwhelming, you know, because we're so new and we just didn't... We were three months old when that thing came out. You, you know, know, didn't expect it still you know, we're very appreciative. And so I think, honestly, I'm still working through um, the emotions around it. But we're definitely appreciative. Our team, you know, we've definitely had some long days, especially if we're down to cook, or if someone's out sick, you know, when you only have four cooks, and one one person's out, you really feel that in a different way than let's say, if you have 20 cooks or 40 cooks. So I think, our team has had some tougher days because of it. And the volume we're doing is so high and the pars doubled literally from a Tuesday, doubled to tripled of what we're cooking. So our it's whole a Saturday night, every night, yeah, or at least it was for the first like two months of it, you know? Right. So I, I, I think it's, we've had challenges, but we're so thankful that we have this. It's a great. The only <laughs> thing worse than a busy restaurant is a slow restaurant, you know? Um, and I think for us, 
you know, we didn't expect any of it. You know, we haven't done, we haven't invested a dollar into PR marketing. Um, we've done everything ourselves. Um, but, you know, we decided like, let's just focus on being as good as we possibly can and making this a place that the industry would want to, like restaurant industry would want to come hang out. Um, and, you know, that is our PR and marketing. <laughs> if they enjoy it, they'll get the word out. You know, it's just how it works, um, at least in Austin. And I think, um, you know, we were overwhelmed by it. And then like, you know, it's been kind of successive. It's all like happened one after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel so lucky. It is a, like a wonderful thing to have people get it, you know? And I think that that is the part that's affirming. I think you're right in the sense that it has raised expectations. Um, and we probably hear more people being like, doesn't meet the hype or whatever it is. And it's like, what hype? Like we didn't, we didn't create the hype. It's just like a neighborhood restaurant, my bar. Uh, you know, so it's the, the challenge for us has to been like to be able to mute the sound and the noise around us and kind of just focus on the thing that we were always going to focus on and not change from it. You know, it's like, we have to be committed to the journey we'd begun. And, you know, we have to remember that like the reason press is even paying attention to us is because we're doing something that is ours and singular. So we just got to double down on those things. We spoke a little bit about um, like the hours of operation. Um, You're currently only open five days a week. And uh, is it feasible to remain open five days a week or you have plans to expand to seven days a week. Um, everyone would probably love to keep their five day work week, but I'm, I'm curious if, um, you know, you've got a, a hot restaurant, you know, it's popular and you've got long waits. Um, I'm sure you've looked at the numbers and thought what two days more a week will mean, uh, on the bottom line, but what that drain might be on the both of you as the operators. So, um, what is that calculus? Like, how do you place values on both the business generating income and also you and your staff? Like, how, how did you come to that, to that decision? Sure. So I, I never want to say like, never, ever will we do X or Y because we're always evolving and the climate in the world can always change. But for now, we definitely are very happy with the five days and you know, what we're bringing in. And if we can guarantee Sunday Mondays off for our team, they, a lot of our team's family live a couple hours away in Houston or San Antonio. So they know they can plan that Sunday in two months to go see their parents or something. And I think that's really important. That stability is really important for a good life, um, for our cooks and for our whole team. Um, and I think for us, like we tried to do nothing Sunday related to birdies. We try to just rest and be husband and wife and hang out with our dogs um, and our friends and clean the house. And then Monday we do kind of an office day and like I'll do our flowers. We'll do some birdies related things, but it's really important to us to try to keep Sunday. So I think both for our sanity, for our team's health, I think we really, really want to keep the five days. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm the the numbers guy. I'm like always playing around in my spreadsheets and kind of like thinking about what that looks like. And I think, you know, there, there are also, I think we forget there are also hurdles that come with like opening seven days a week. Suddenly you have to like almost double your staff and then you have to like scheduling becomes like a, you know, a full-time Tetris 
yeah, it's just like Tetris. And then, you know, people are requesting days off and it's just like more to manage. <laughs> um, I think, like Tracy said, I think, you know, if anything, I'm like, how do we bump up our volume on four days a week so we can go down to four? <laughs> you know, it's like, I want, it, I, I think we're just past that point where we're like, we have to squeeze every single dollar out of this business for it to work. And I think just to go back to like the last question about business plan, you know, we didn't really write a huge extensive business plan, but one thing we were super hardcore about was hitting our rent number that we'd planned in our business plan. We're like everything else can change. We are not compromising on hitting this number and being able to get our occupancy costs where we wanted it to be allows us now the freedom to not have to like have that extra day. Right. So it was like, how are we going to do like the controllables? How are we going to get those things to where we feel really good about them so that we can do this other stuff that we want to do once we open? You know, like I think in, there were moments where we almost moved off of that because it was so frustrating, so hard to find a space. It took us a year and a half to find a space, you know, but it was like we are going to be extremely dogmatic about like this one thing. And that's like, I don't want to spend more than this amount of money on rent. And somehow we found a space without a broker because our friend lived down the street. At the exact right <laughs> rent price we were looking at. It was Just got bananas. really and This is where luck out. matters. You know, it's like, could spend another, another year and a half looking for it. Yeah, we were totally. driving around or like riding our bike around, going into places where restaurants looked a little bit slower. Like, hey, just checking in. Are you guys looking to sublease or what's the situation? I know this is random. Like you have to get scrappy to find that good deal. Yeah, and I'm sure in Austin, those deals are becoming even fewer and far between since uh, residential has skyrocketed there. And I'm sure that commercial is mimicking that as well, right? Like as uh, thousands yeah. of people are moving to Austin all every month. So as it becomes a lot more desirable, you've got great, more clientele, but also the landlords are hip to the fact that they can start charging, you know, LA prices are, are probably getting, you're right. probably getting close to LA prices, I would assume in Austin, right? For a lot of places. Yeah. I think like, yeah. you know, we lucked out in a lot of ways. Um, you know, our landlords are wonderful people. Um, we have a, like a relationship with them now. And like when COVID hit, they were willing to sit down with us and renegotiate the lease during like, till we got open. Um, a lot of people are, don't have that kind of luck with their landlords, you know? Um, and as the market here changes, I think we have to like, because we have such lovely like landlords, I think, you know, the question we ask is like, how do we be even more responsible tenants? You know, I think there's like that reciprocal kind of relationship, which when it works, it works really well. Um, and we've been lucky to have landlords that have really trusted us and said like, we believe in what you're doing. You have our support, you know? Yeah. And, and we did put a lot into the building. So we kind of made it a win-win like, they're giving us a good deal on rent, but not really TI. So we're, you know, improving their asset as well. So that in every kind of aspect of the relationship of restaurants, you know, whether it's with our employees, our partners, our landlord, we try to create win-wins. And that's kind of always what we're looking for. Even though your menu changes a lot, I would love it if you could try to walk us through a dish or two or even like the perfect order right now. Um, and just for people that are listening that have, you know, they've never been to Birdie's before. What do you think is a really wonderful representation of the restaurant? Is there a, a dish or two that you think like um, 
if you if you would keep them on the menu for forever, they might be sort of like, you know, the stars that never leave. That's a great question. It's something Arjop and I were just discussing last week. Um, so our menus divided up into snacks, small plates, large plates, and desserts. Um, everything's pretty tight. We don't have a big menu. Um, I would say our chickpea panisse is one of those things on the menu that we might not ever take off. We're not sure, but that's something that doesn't really change. Um, and it's kind of come a, a guest favorite. Um, so it's like chickpea panisse, um, cook it, and then we cut it into logs and then great pecorino cheese, black pepper, and have a garnish of lemon. It's, it's so simple, but it's, you know, it's like cacio pepe, chickpea, like, cacio pepe, yeah, essentially. Um, so that's a, that's one that might not ever change in the snack section. And then the beef tartare might not change for a while either. So it's, it kind of, the aioli varies on the season. So we had some pickled ramps from before. And so that was with the pickled ramp aioli, Sonora wheat berries from Brock Barton Springs Mill, which is this awesome local um, uh, place we love. And so we literally cook the Sonora ber berries, like we soak them and then boil those. And it's with Texas pecans, uh, smoked shiitakes that are also local, chives, shallots, um, and then it's served with the Carta de Musica. So this just like big wild Sardinian cracker on the side. And so it's kind of just like a break off the chip and scoop. Um, and I love it because we're an American seasonal restaurant with Italian and French influences. And so there's like the Sardinian cracker, but it's still very Texas. And I think it's the philosophy of our food in a dish. And I can't come up with anything that's better than that. So I don't know if that'll change for a while. You're fairly new to Austin. You moved there like to open up a business and then the pandemic happened. And so like so many, so many people, your, your lives have been sort of thrown through the ringer over the last couple of years. Do you feel like you've found a personal home in Austin? Like, do you feel like you've uh, ac accomplished what you set out to accomplish or did COVID actually like freeze your life in a way where you haven't really felt like you've been able to really experience it? Um, and I ask that because I've, I've spoken to so many people that feel like even though they've been actually moving forward, COVID has made everything a little like foggy. It's almost like you're underwater a little bit. So how have you felt opening up a business and moving to a new city sort of under the cloud of, of COVID, unfortunately? I think our first year and a half, two years in Austin, to be frank, were really challenging. You know, we, Austin, our, our job had a a tough time adjusting to Austin. It's a very different city than New York, um, than DC where he was before that from Portland, Oregon, where he grew up. So I think it was a challenge for him as a person. Um, my best friend I grew up with is here. Um, and her husband, who was like our second family, but you know, still we didn't have our extensive community of people that I had in New York for over a decade there. Um, so it definitely took us a while to get settled. Um, you know, figuring out the business when COVID hit, we're like, are we going to raise this money? Is this going to happen? There were definitely a lot of low points in COVID where we were like, are we insane? You know, we have this lease. We only have two thirds of the capital raised. We're about to start construction. What's going on? And so I definitely think we had some really low lows through COVID. But I think since we've opened birdies, I think and we finally got it open. I think we're having a lot of fun. We're definitely learning things every day. But I think since July, since we opened, I think we finally felt like this is what we're meant to do. This is the place we're meant to do it. 
this is the community that we love and that we're constantly making more friends um, with like chefs, restaurateurs, um, and our guests in town. So I think now we're super thankful to be in this community, but the first two, two years were really tough. Yeah, I think it was hard, you know, um, politically it was hard, like for a lot of reasons for me to wrap my head around being in Texas, you know, after years of kind of living on the coast. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing I'm really grateful for, and this is like something that's very singular and kind of unique to Austin, is that like everybody here wants to help. They every it feels like everybody wants to see us succeed, um, and the the you know birdies is like has brought us a lot of happiness and a lot of joy. But maybe like the biggest gift it's brought us in this like first few months has been in like this community that has just grown and expanded exponentially. And as like an extrovert, you know, Tracy is a lot more introverted than me. Um, as an extrovert, it's like something I need, you know. So it's it's it feels really good to have friends and like now live in a world where we can actually go out and eat with friends and drink with friends and you know be ourselves you know covid like forced me into like <laughs> an 800 square foot apartment for six months and that'll drive anybody crazy i mean <laughs> you know? to like, be honest i mean we were coming from a 500 square foot apartment in Brooklyn, totally so. but like you know we were allowed to <laughs> like walk, we, we were allowed to get out you know it's like it just like those first few months where you like didn't know you know, and you just got furloughed and like, it, it was hard. It was challenging, but you know, this project I think gave us a North star during that uh, process. It gave us like a, a goal, um, a joint goal. And, you know, doing this as like a couple as well as business partners, like there were challenges that came along with it. Like, you know, knowing how to separate business from life, you know, like that was a challenge, but COVID gave us, an opportunity to solve some of those, those things before we opened rather than like waiting till we opened and then like coming through it, you know? So in a lot of ways, like COVID helped us reorient the business. You know, if we had, if we had signed the lease like six months before we did, it would have really screwed us. <laughs> uh, but you know, when it, just like, this is where like the luck thing I keep going back to, it's like, we got so lucky with timing. You know, got so lucky with the landlords we signed with. We got so lucky about when we opened, um, you know, and we allowed that time that we were locked up to kind of rethink Birdie's. Like it became a counter service restaurant during that time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and sharing your story with everybody. You have to let everybody know the address of the restaurant now. So if they're in Austin or if they're going to visit, how they can find you and also uh, website and Instagram so that people can and can check in and follow along with what's going on. So we're at 2944 East 12th Street on the corner of Harvey and great little neighborhood. And our Instagram handle is Birdies Austin. That's B-I-R-D-I-E-S Austin. Our website is birdiesaustin.com. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.